0: Welcome to episode 203 of the Women of the Military podcast. This episode is in loving memory of U.S. Air Force Airman Richard Jules Medina, 1995 to 2022. He was a good man. My guest this week is Virginia Lee Johnson. She served not only in the Navy, but also in the Army where she gained her commission. At the age of 18, she joined the Navy and became a journalist. After a break in service due to her mother's death, she rejoined the Navy and became an intelligence specialist in the reserves. It was her lifelong goal to be an officer, but by the time she had earned her bachelor's degree and qualified to become an officer, she was older than the Navy allowed. Fortunately, she was able to qualify to be an officer under the Army's cutoff age and she commissioned into the California Army National Guard while on full time status with the Fort Irwin National Training Center. That's just a peek of her story, and there's a lot more to go. So let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Virginia. I'm so excited to have you here.
1: It's exciting to be here. Thank you for doing this.
0: So let's start with why did you decide to join the military?
1: Why did I decide to join the military? I had always intended to join the Navy. My father was a career Navy man. He retired at 20 years. And I just wanted to do what he did and make him proud of me. And when I joined, I was the first woman from my little town of Alpine, California, to join the military. So it was, <laughs> it was front page news in our, in our little town, in our
0: newspaper were you a military brat or how old were you when he retired?
1: I was. I was eight when my dad retired and uh, we, he retired in San Diego. And at that same time, I developed tuberculosis from, for the second time. So my parents were advised to take me to Alpine, which was then the healthiest climate in the United States. So we moved way out in the mountains past Alpine, and that's where I spent my the rest of my childhood years. So very far away from the the Navy. but sometimes when I got older, as a teenager, I would take the bus with my friends, We'd take the the Greyhound bus all the way to San Diego, just so I could look at the ships. And at that time, they allowed visitors and the the ships would dock at at the Broadway pier and for two days on the weekends. And so we got to tour all the ships. It was so exciting. That was that just fueled my my wanting to go into the Navy. So when I went into the Navy, they automatically put me in the naval air and I never saw another ship after that. Because at that time, of course, women were not allowed on ships.
0: Yeah. Isn't that how it goes? You're like, I'm going to be in the Navy. I'm going to be on ship. And then you're like, no, you're not. <laughs> I just wanted just put me on a base and have ships, anything close to a ship.
1: No, I was on Naval Air Stations the rest of my <laughs> my tour.
0: So let's talk about boot camp and tech school and what that experience was like.
1: Boot camp. Uh. I realized how much my mother had spoiled me because in boot camp, we had to iron our own uniforms. And in 1966, women were treated a lot differently. We had to be dressed as ladies. So all of our uniforms had to be ironed, starched and ironed. I didn't know how to iron. I burned seven uniforms. And my, I constantly had to call my mom and ask my dad and my mom and tell them to send more money. I'd buy another uniform. Finally, the uniform master just took pity on me and gave me a free uniform. But yeah, I had to learn how to iron really quickly. Another thing that was so different about The basic training then as compared to what my girls went through later on, we had to wear nylons at all times unless we were wearing our dungarees. And dungarees were pressed slacks, actually. So we had to wear nylons at all times. I was from the country. I didn't wear nylons. So I got written up because I didn't have nylons on. So I had to learn how to wear nylons at all times. And in those days, there were no pantyhose. It was a girdle. And we had to wear a girdle. Had to wear a girdle with stockings. And you ne- if you've never worn a girdle with those darn snapping garter things and stockings, they are so uncomfortable. But yes, I was told I had to wear a girdle as well. In fact, we were issued girdles. Uh, and boot camp was, we had no physical training. All we did was march. I don't remember even having calisthenics because, again, it was women were viewed differently then. So we did do a lot of marching information uh, in this big gym and then sometimes out on the grinder. But other than that, there was no physical training and certainly no weapons. We did not, did not, were not issued weapons and had no contact with weapons. Very different than the the basic training that women go through now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because it's not that long ago. I mean, it, it's a long time, but it's also not a long time. And it's to see how much change has happened from '66 yeah. to. I mean, even when I joined in 2007 and went through the same training as my male counterparts and shot a weapon and never had to wear nylons, thankfully. Because I know a- <laughs> and be and have to wear a girdle. They still had those, whatever those shirt things were that you had to strap to your socks to keep your shirt tight. I wore those because we would wear pants. So you would strap oh. it to the bottom of your shirt and then you strap it to your socks. So that way when you would, it would never blouse up. I can't remember what those are called, but they were annoying and uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> what military branch were you in?
0: The Air Force.
1: Oh, Navy didn't have those. I, I'm glad they didn't
0: yeah they're they're not fun, but they make it so your shirt never like pooches up in the back and it always stays straight oh. so they're not they're not fun to wear, but that was in training. and then when we were on active duty, they had shirts that we didn't have to have tucked in, which was really nice. That was like a special treat that you could wear. They were cut a different way.
1: I remember our dungarees, they were called dungarees, but they weren't dungarees. They were kind of a cotton that easily wrinkled and uh, it did have a nice crease though but it required ironing so a lot of my time in boot camp was spent ironing in the laundry room Uh, another thing i remembered about adjusting to boot camp was our lockers had to be all um, white and we were allowed underwear that was not issued by the navy but I didn't know that they could be in black and pink and, and rose colored and red. So when an, uh, an inspection was going on and the petty officer opened my, my locker to show the inspecting party and there was all my multicolored underwear.
0: <laughs> well, I got in trouble for that too. <laughs> That's funny. So after basic training where you, didn't do a lot of what we would think of as basic training now. What did you do? Did you go to a school or did you go to your first base? What was, what was next after that?
1: I, I went to my first base and a school was going to be, it, we weren't given a school right away. So I went to my first duty station, which was uh, Andrews air force base on the Navy side and being from alpine california a little mountain town to go to washington dc was so exciting and uh, when we crossed the chesapeake i had never seen a river before i thought it was the ocean it just seemed so wide and to go on forever and i I thought it was the atlantic ocean
0: i remember coming to dc my first time when i was in eighth grade and i'm from california and i was like That can't be a river. It's so big. So
1: I understand. I I remember seeing it from the airplane and say, oh, look, there's the Atlantic Ocean. And my seatmate corrected me, but I remember that. (laughs) Yeah, being from California, Southern California, there are no rivers except for the Colorado River. But who? I lived nowhere near there and never seen a river.
0: Yeah, you see like, streams and they call them rivers but they're not yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so what was your job when you were there and how long were you there before you went to a school
1: I never did go to a school I was stationed at as I said at Andrews and I was kind of a, a general clerk in the air tower so I one of my jobs was to order the meals for passengers on the flights that would be going out from Andrews, from the Navy side. And uh, that was really boring. <laughs> and it was, sometimes it was overwhelming too, because I didn't had no training for it. I did get to see uh, President Johnson though, when he was um, at Andrews Air Force Base. So that was exciting. So from Andrews, I was stationed at Patuxent River Naval Air Station. And I had asked for a striker, which means you're an apprentice doing on-the-job training. So I had asked to strike for journalist. And that's what I did at Patuxent River. And that that was exciting because I was assigned to, uh, for instance, to a CB unit. And gosh, I think that was about a month that I was spent out in the in the jungles of Southern Maryland in the swamps. And going with the Seabees and doing uh, stories on them. I also had a, uh, a broadcast radio broadcast throughout Maryland and Washington, D.C., and uh, wrote an article for the Stars and Stripes and just did a lot of articles for the base paper. So that was very exciting. I got out earlier than my, my termination date. My mother... Got sick and had cancer and uh, died suddenly. So I had two younger uh, younger brother and sister at home, and a, a dad that was not able to cope. So I got out on a humanitarian discharge, and my my intention was to go back in. In the meantime, I raised my brother and sister, and I got married and had a child. And the law was that if you had a child, you could not be in the military. Uh, and that's one thing I forgot to tell you about uh, boot camp. First thing that we went into boot camp was we were shown a film, and the opening scene is this lone woman with a suitcase, and she's standing in front of the Bainbridge or any other naval training center doors. And she's alone, and the taxi cab came for her, and you could tell she was pregnant, and it said, the, the opening statement was don't let this happen to you because at that time even if you were married it didn't matter if you got pregnant you were automatically out of the military that was the law so fast forward a, a few years and I was I just waited and hoped that the law would change and eventually it did in the 70s I think it changed in 1973. 72 or 73. So as soon as the law changed, I went back into the Navy uh, as a reservist. So I forget exactly what year it was, but as soon as the law changed, I went back in and finished my duty with with the Navy. But my original goal had always been to be a military officer. And I found an opening, a way to do it. And that was with the California Army National Guard and any Army National Guard unit. They had officer training programs. So their Army officer training programs. And uh, the cutoff date was 32 years and six months. So you couldn't be older than that. The Navy said I was too old to go through their, their candidate program. So I looked to the Army and the Army had one. So I transferred over to the Army.
0: And what was the training like for, I mean, it's not boot camp, it's officer training, but it's still kind of similar in different, certain ways. Were there calisthenics? Was there working out? Was it still really focused on ironing and keeping your uniform nice? Or how was it different?
1: It was, well, so this, I guess about seven years had passed between boot camp and when I went into transferred over to the army and the uh, whole world changed, just starting with the language of uh, the Navy has its own terms and the army has its own language. And I remember in OCS, I, they gave the command during a weapons drill. Uh, they gave the command port arms. And I thought, oh, thank God, at last, a word that I recognize, port. In the Navy, that means your left side. So I put my weapon on my left shoulder, and that's not what port means in the in the Army. Port arms is you hold your, your weapon on your arm, straight out in front of you. So, yeah, I got, I got, I think, 50 push-ups for that one. Totally different. OCS was... Very physical, extremely physical. And I'd never had that in the, military, in the Navy. So it was, it was a challenge. I flunked out, or I didn't flunk out. I gave up. I think I lasted a month, a month or two months in the OCS. And I, and I said, I can't do it. One of the problems that I faced that I'm very short, I'm only five feet tall. At that time, I weighed probably 100 pounds. They had no uniforms that fit. In fact, I had to wear men's combat boots, and they were too big for me. And I had to try to run in those. And the uniforms were way too big. So, and not, to, not to, the least of which was a helmet that bounced around on my head because it was too big. So I was running in, in men's boots and and wearing a helmet that was bouncing around on my on my head while I was trying to run. So I was out of my element. So I, my duty station. Then I became I went to Fort Irwin National Training Center and I was uh, on full time status and I was um, an E five a sergeant and uh, I chose mechanic. So I was a tr- uh, Tank and truck mechanic. And I loved it. I really loved it. it. And it was hard. It was hard work, working in the sun, carrying things. So, after about a year of that, I realized that I was ready because it was very hard physically. So, I was ready and I went back into OCS and uh, graduated ahead of my class and um, did very well. I was prepared and I knew what the army was like then.
0: Yeah. Sometimes if, I mean, you were switching branches and it is its own different language. I've done enough interviews with Navy talks. I'm like, what are you saying? I don't understand. And so I'm like slowly learning the lingo and trying to figure out what people are. But when I first did my first interview with someone in the Navy, I was like, I don't know what she's saying.
1: Exactly. Yeah was lost they they just spoke a different language than I did that and being physically exhausted and not having a uniform that fit and clunking around in these big men's boots but the second time around I knew what to expect and I prepared for
0: it so after you graduated you commissioned and you went back to the National Guard were you still working full-time
1: Yes, I was still working full time at the at the Army Training Center um, when I got my commission. I had told you that their cutoff date was thirty two years and six months. I would turn thirty two and six months before my birthday, and I don't know why they didn't figure that out in the first place, but thank God they did in time, so I had to put in for a waiver. I think my birthday occurred two months over that deadline. So I got the waiver, but I didn't know I had the waiver until the day 32 and six months occurred. So it was that day and I had to be enlisted. I had to be sworn in that day. So we waited and waited all night. I was awake all night the night before because I didn't know if I would get the waiver or not. And the day came, and I was still I was working in the warehouse at the mates at Fort Irwin, and I heard over the loudspeaker to return to the office. And the major who was in charge of the facility said, "Okay, I have to swear you in now. The waiver came through, so I got sworn in in the middle of the warehouse with all my workers around us, and that's how I became an officer, <laughs> first and only." To, um, to be graduated ahead of her class. I was the oldest candidate that they'd ever had and uh, the only one sworn in a warehouse.
0: So you were sworn in before you went through the training because you needed to be sworn in before the date, the
1: cutoff they act- date.
0: They actually
1: let me finish the training. They They excused the rest of the training. So as soon as I was sworn in, then my my, uh, officer's candidate school training ended.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, lots of shifting paperwork and trying to figure things out to make it happen, but they figured it out.
1: One of the reasons they allowed me to stop officer's candidate training early was that I was already on active duty as an officer candidate, so working at Fort Irwin. So I was getting a lot of, a lot of experience that other candidates weren't getting. This was a year long program that you attended. Uh, The OCS was a year long and you attended one weekend a month and then two weeks before and after the program. So they just excused the rest of the program because they figured that I had, I was already on active duty
0: anyway. That makes sense. So, how many years after you commissioned did you serve in the Army? 20. So, that means you were in for a long time total. I was. 26 years. Wow. So, and you were you in the, the California National Guard the whole time, or the 20?
1: No, I was in the California Army National Guard for about six years, I guess. And um, then i I went to Hawaii... I'd been there before. The Navy had sent me there before. And I went to, to Hawaii on a vacation. I took a class, a space A flight to Hawaii on vacation. And as it turned out, I couldn't get a, a flight back right away. So I drilled with the with the Hawaii Army National Guard headquarters. And they offered me a slot. And I said, oh yes. So I I transferred to the Hawaii Army National Guard and um, about, I guess about four months after I'd been there, they put me on full-time with the headquarters on Diamond Head.
0: And when you moved, were you still married and you had your kids? What was that transition like? Uh,
1: My husband did not survive the transition. He said he could not, he couldn't stand Hawaii. And I think that for us, the real difficulty was he was an E-7 on full-time status at Fort Irwin with me. And it was, he just felt very uncomfortable with my being an officer. He supported me when I was in OCS. And even as a former Marine, he showed me how to run and, and dive and run and dive with your weapon and behind the closest barrier. and showed me a lot of infantry tactics but when it came to facing life as a husband of an officer it was a big barrier between us so he didn't survive the transfer to Hawaii and he didn't he didn't survive my becoming an officer either he was very uncomfortable with
0: it yeah it's interesting that he was supportive to help you get trained and to support you in and then once it happened, it was like, wait, this isn't really
1: what I signed up for. Yes, um, exactly. And he, he was just uncomfortable talking to a lot of officers because it, at that time, Fort Irwin was a close-knit community. And officers did a lot of things and officers' families. We did a lot of things together. And he was very uncomfortable having to interact with uh, officers. And then I was sent back to my basic course for ordinance. I wanted to be an ordinance officer, which was in line with what I had done as an enlisted person. And uh, that was a four and a half month course. And uh, that was like the icing on the cake for him. He was very upset. It was hard for him. And I did get to bring my daughters. I have my daughters come and visit me during basic, my basic course. I had housing, they issued me housing, but they only stayed for about, I think, two months. And, but it was wonderful having them with me, but it was also for that short amount of time, it was difficult.
0: Yeah, I bet. And where were they when they weren't with you? They
1: went back with him.
0: Okay. And so when you guys, did you guys do like dual parenting after the divorce? And that's how you were able to stay in the military. He was able to help.
1: Yes and yes so we did dual parenting but um gosh uh shortly thereafter i think about six months after my daughter turned 18 so she was eligible for the navy and she went in shortly after that without telling me
0: without telling you
1: she signed up and then she came home and said mom Will you swear me in? And I said, Swear you into what? she said, I joined the Navy. So that was a momentous occasion, swearing my my older daughter, my firstborn, into the Navy.
0: And did you have any inkling or suspicion that she was going to join the military? Or did like, did it come no, out of
1: No, with neither one, both of them, as they were entering their teenage years, they both said, Mother, There's three things we will not do, either one of us. We will not go in the military. We will not get married to a military man. And we will go nowhere near the military. Yeah. So I believed it. And I guess at the time, they both believed themselves, too. Yeah, well, that didn't happen. They did the opposite. (laughs) Both of them went in the military. And my older daughter married a military guy. And my younger daughter she had long-term relationships with military men so both of them it was a surprise i didn't know with either one of them
0: that's kind of funny you're like okay they're not gonna join the military and then they're like no just kidding and and your youngest served for 20 years 21 years right
1: yes 21 years i had no suspicion no clue because they were so adamant that they were not going in the military and my younger daughter went to college she spent um a semester or two semesters at uh university of hawaii at manoa so i thought okay well she meant what she said she's going to be in college she's going to be a vet and then came the news that mom i joined the navy (laughs) okay
0: so what was it like to have your kids follow in your footsteps and join the navy and you were still in the military, and they yeah. were in the navy. And what was that dynamic like? And were there any challenges?
1: Well, my daughters are ten years apart, so my older daughter and I were both on active duty at the same time. I think I went to reserve status, which was a uh, so with the Hawaii Army National Guard. So that was one week in a month and two weeks during the the summer but i was also in the kind of unit that a civil affairs unit so any any action that was involved that uh, the military was involved in we were would be put on alert because we would have to go in and, and do civil operations in the wake of wherever the units were so i was always if if we were involved in um, bosnia and I was also in the military during the the first war we had with uh, Saddam Hussein when he invaded Kuwait. So both times I was on alert, and my daughter was safely stationed at thirty second street naval air naval station. so she wasn't going anywhere, but i we both had to live with the fact that maybe mom had to. so when my my da- younger daughter, went in 10 years after her sister did. She was an air traffic controller. On her first tour of duty, she was mostly stationed in San Diego, which was nice. And she was, so that was land. Uh, but during her second tour, she was put on an aircraft carrier. And every tour after that, she was on an aircraft ter- carrier. So she enjoyed being based on land because it was The first and only time she was based on land. After that, it was all aircraft carriers. And I was okay with it. In the meantime, I retired. uh, And about the same time that I retired, uh, she was going on aircraft carriers. I didn't worry because everything was quiet. 9-11 had yet to happen. After 9-11 happened, the whole world changed and our world changed too. Actually, I volunteered to go back on active duty after 9/11 happened. Um, I forgot to tell you that when I was stationed at Patuxent River Air Naval Air Station, when I was in the Navy, I had volunteered for Vietnam. Uh, It was myself and quite a few other the uh, Navy waves. We were called waves then. We had volunteered for Vietnam, but at that time, the Navy did not station women in Vietnam, so. I wasn't able to go to Vietnam and I was determined, even though I was retired when 9-11 happened, I was determined I wanted to go back on active duty, but I wasn't, I was never called up for active duty. But my daughter, my youngest daughter was on more and more dangerous areas. So she had two tours of duties that just scared, that scared me. And then I realized how My two daughters must have felt when I was constantly going on alert status because I was having those same feelings with my younger daughter being on alert status. And I remember there were two times. The first time was when she was on an aircraft carrier in the Middle East and their ship was going through the Straits of Hormuz. And um, the president of Iran was threatening to bomb her ship. And he named her ships specifically. And at the same time, the ship went on radio silence. So that meant, or communication silence. So that meant no emails in or out, complete communication cutoff. So here's the announcements from the president of Iran that he's going to bomb my daughter's ship. I had no idea where in the Straits of Hormuz she was, how far along the ship was, and only bad news on the on the news broadcasts. And thinking, okay, something's imminent, and uh, that was a really really difficult ten days, not knowing if my daughter was in harm's way. The second time was by then I had moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. And my daughter was stationed at the air station, Fallon, Nevada. So I got to see her. It was only a six-hour drive, but I would drive up there to see her. And she bought a house. And I thought, oh, yes, oh, yes, my daughter's going to be here at least for three years. Oh, yes. Yeah, about six months after she bought the house, she got orders for Africa, emergency orders, to go to Africa, to the base in Africa, and it was hazardous duty. So she spent a year in Africa under hazardous, very dangerous place. She could not go, they could not go off of the base uh, without being uh, escorted by um, Marines. And she got to go off the base two times, and they went to a hotel for a uh, lunch and had to be escorted by Marines back to the hotel. and it was um just a very scary time. And thank goodness, there was always communications, though, so that helped. <laughs> but it's um uh, I got to learn what if how my daughters must have felt
0: yeah, so you you were on your adventures and being in the service and then you were the mom who was left behind and you got to see how that felt and and how hard it is on military families that kids adults parents everybody
1: you feel it when you're the military member and you're the one who is off on those adventures as you said we're focusing on what we're on the the mission and our, our angst is different than what our families go through. Yes, you worry about your family, but I knew that my husband had my daughters and they were safe. And so I, I focused on my mission both times. So I had basic training as an ordinance officer and advanced training as an ordinance officer. The second training was quite a bit longer. So I got to have my daughters with me the whole time and that helped. But the first time and, and the various times when I was sent uh, different places for training and sent to Germany, my focus was different. It was on the mission. I didn't have to worry. So I had no clue what it felt like to be a family member and wonder about your the military person in your life. So I had a wake up call with my younger daughter.
0: Yeah. I really love getting to hear your story and I love the history of women who served in not the early days but the when all the things were changing and the and all and the way that you know boot camp changed and how women were given more opportunities and jobs so it was really interesting sure. to hear your career but I want to talk about what are you doing today and then I have one more question
1: what am I doing today well, one of my my civilian activities is I'm the the, the chapter president, uh, the Las Vegas chapter of the Association of the United States Army, which is a very powerful organization. We have chapters throughout Europe and uh, one in Asia too, and throughout the United States. And I am the President for the Las Vegas Chapter. So that keeps me quite busy. In fact, uh, at the end of this month, I'm going back to Washington, D.C. for a week-long conference and training. So that's just one of my pastimes, so to speak. It keeps my feet in the military world. I got my PhD, my master's and my PhD PhD right after I retired. So the, the week after I retired, I signed up for the master's program and got my master's degree a couple of years later, and then went on to get my PhD. So I was a with my PhD. I was an educator and a counselor and a therapist. My master's degree was in counseling and, and education. So I was able to do both. And Life goes on, and life makes strange and and odd turns. A man that I had met in one of my training courses uh, was from the Egyptian army, and um, quite handsome young captain. And years went by, and uh, we we talked to each other through mail. Uh, this was before the days of email, so snail mail. And we were reunited. About 28 years after our first, we had first met, we were reunited and we got married. And by that time, he was a general in the Egyptian army. And of course, I was retired. I was working as a therapist with schools in Hawaii. And I ended up moving to Egypt. And uh, unfortunately, three weeks after I moved to Egypt, he died but I stayed there for 10 years and working in the schools. And um, I have to say that I brought the special education programs and techniques to many Egyptian schools that had no idea how to do it and had never allowed special education programs in their schools before. So it was a time well, well spent, very productive time.
0: Yeah. I'm so sorry for your loss. And, but it's, Interesting how it opened a door to a career that you probably never would have, you never would have ended up in Egypt. I mean, you might have, but it just opened a door to something that you probably never would have done and how you could change people's lives by introducing those programs and helping those schools.
1: Yeah, I was, I, I guess I was supposed to be there.
0: Yeah. So I want to say again, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. But I always like to end the interview with what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military?
1: I would say do it. There was no better place for me than the military. And any time that I meet a young person who is stuck in a, a job, pushing a wheelchair at an airport or working at a, in Walmart or working in McDonald's, I always say, why not try the military? Why not consider the military? I would say to a young woman who's considering going in the military, yes, go. It will change your life. It changed mine.
0: I love that answer. It really does change your life. It just opens doors that you didn't know were openable, (laughs) reachable, and just changes your life.
1: For me, it opened doors that I didn't know even existed.
0: That's what I was trying to say. There we go. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If this is your first time listening to Women of the Military podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast. There are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in joining, serving, leaving the military, or just learning about the women who have served in the military. If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military. And if you enjoyed Women of the Military podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service.